0: The Land of the Unsolved is sponsored by Spot Crime, the number one crime mapping site in the country. Make sure to visit spotcrime.com to track crime in your neighborhood, because safety begins with knowing. If you want to read more about unsolved murder in Baltimore and beyond, Stephen and I have written three books about the subject, all available through Amazon.com. Why Do We Kill? The Pathology of Murder in Baltimore, You Can't Stop Murder, Truths About Policing in Baltimore and Beyond, and The Book of Cop, A Testament to Policing That Works.
1: Anyone who watches crime dramas could reasonably conclude that when someone is murdered, barring bizarre and extenuating circumstances, the case is solved. That is, Through high-tech forensics, moral resolve, or simply the near-mythic competence of American law enforcement, killers are ultimately sent to jail.
0: And that is the point of this podcast, because unsolved killings represent more than just statistics. It's a psychic toll of stories untold that infects an entire community. The final violent moments of a victim's life that remain shrouded in mystery.
1: I'm Stephen Janis.
0: I'm Taya Graham.
1: And we are investigative reporters who live in Baltimore City.
0: Welcome to the land of the unsolved. Welcome back to the Land of the Unsolved. As you know from past episodes, we focus on the most impenetrable and politically fraught mysteries in Baltimore involving murder. But there is one aspect within this continuum of unsolved cases that we have not broached, yet ties all of these incidents together. The question is why. Meaning, why do people kill? What prompts someone to cross the behavioral transom towards violence to take a life? In a sense, it is the greatest mystery of all. The most important and most relevant unsolved case is the mystery of the mind bent upon killing.
1: That's because the city in which we report, Baltimore, is one of the most violent in the world. Last year, the city had over 300 homicides for the fourth year in a row, even as the population dropped. In fact, as the homicide rate has fallen steadily across the country, Baltimore's murder rate has actually risen. And it is this onslaught of violence that we will try to decipher and explore more in depth, not just to recount it, but to understand its origins.
0: And to do so, we will approach the topic from a somewhat different perspective. We're going to consider the act itself as rational. In other words, instead of simply consigning the cognitive motive of murder to the realm of the irrational, we're going to ponder the state of mind and the psychological condition that makes murder so plausible in Baltimore. That is, we will explore the psyche of a city that often mythologizes violence in shows like The Wire, but avoids truly deciphering our communal imperative to kill.
1: And as is the tradition of the land of the unsolved, we will never hew far from the cases themselves. That is, we will use the actual instances of murder as a lens through which to view the psyche of killers. Throughout our discussion, the cases that embody the extremes, the fever, and the impulsivity that drives violence in the city. All of this coming up on the land of the unsolved.
0: Thank mm-hmm. you. we are going to talk about a case from a book that Stephen and I wrote called Why Do We Kill with Baltimore homicide detective Kelvin Sewell. The book was a project we undertook seven years ago when the homicide rate was actually less than it is now. It was during that time that Kelvin investigated the case of a gang called the Bounty Hunters, a violent group including teenagers that worked in northwest Baltimore. I will first read the chapter on the Bounty Hunters and then we will discuss what we learned from it. Why do we kill? The question hit me as I watched a homicide suspect named Antmo light a match. We were standing on the roof outside the Baltimore City homicide floor on a cold winter night. Antmo was taking a smoke break. He lit the cigarette deliberately, almost too carefully. He took a deep drag and inhaled. And that's when I wondered about why people kill. I wondered as I watched Antmo. It's a question a homicide detective rarely asks. Why is kind of a luxury. We want to know how, so we can figure out who. But as Anthony Williams, also known as Antmo, focused on enjoying his cigarette, the questions seem appropriately timed. We had just finished questioning Antmo about the death of Petro Taylor. Antmo had said nothing. He was a short, muscled punk. Even though we already knew what he'd done, he sat there with a thousand-yard stare. But as his cigarette dragged down to the butt, I suggested Antmo put it out with his fingers. I don't know why I said it. Probably anger, frustration. Needless to say, he wasn't interested. Yo, man, I'd burn myself, he protested. Well, how do you think Petro felt when you lit the match? Antmo turned to Detective Mike Morin. I don't think Sergeant Sewell likes me. Detective Morin shrugged. No, he doesn't. And that's when it dawned on me. That's when I posed the question and hit upon a theory. You see, we knew Aunt Mo lit the match that set fellow gang member Petro Taylor on fire. Yet he didn't seem to grasp what I was saying. The discomfort of the glowing ember that would burn his hand, juxtaposed with the horrific pain of being engulfed in flames until you die, was apparently beyond his comprehension. With all the killers I'd sat across the table from, listening to them lie or confess, it was this inexplicable disconnect of Antmo that they all had in common, a lack of empathy that leads me to conclude that murder in Baltimore is pathological. Did he not understand that the tiny pain he might have felt was simply a glimpse of the excruciating suffering that Petro experienced before he died in a ball of flames? Was Antmo that disconnected and unaware? Or had the hopelessness that pervades this town infected its social fabric to a degree that killers like Antmo are just a product of the landscape, born to one day walk through the doors of my office? Let me elaborate. If you visit Baltimore, drive to the northwest section of the city. I recommend Reisterstown Road. It's an old commercial thoroughfare offering uneven sidewalks lined with chicken shacks, liquor stores, nail shops, gas stations, and no shortage of empty storefronts. One endless, colorless mile after another as if washed in silt. It's like the ghetto without the dramatic urban decay that you find in the heart of a once thriving city. Reisterstown Road is just a static strip of hopelessness. A few blocks past Northern Parkway, look to your left. There you'll see a red carpet inn. A pretty grim structure. A low-slung building that looks more like a prison than a motel. If you're really curious, venture up a cage stairwell on the left side of the motel. Third floor, take another left, and walk about 50 feet. You should be standing in front of room 312. That's the room where it happened. The case that taught me that murder in Baltimore is a pathology. Not an illness or disease, but a sort of unspoken war against life. Why it grows. How it evolves. In that room one night in December 2008, there was a murder. Not a simple murder. Not one man kills another or a jealous lover slays a rival. This murder was carried out in a series of concerted actions by no less than eight teenagers, and for all intents and purposes, a few children. It involved a beating, a stabbing, and burning a man alive. A gruesome series of violent acts that speaks to real violence beneath the somber guise of the disjointed strip mall rolled into decay that is Northwest Baltimore. It was the night a young man named Petro Taylor would suffer a brutal, painful, and ignominious death. And it all started with a party. members of a Baltimore gang known as the Bounty Hunters had gathered at the Red Carpet Inn to drink and to have sex. Technically, the Bounty Hunters are part of the Bloods, the de facto collection arm of one of the nation's most notorious street gangs. But gangs in Baltimore tend to be the equivalent of brand name knockoffs, and Baltimore's version of the Bounty Hunters was no exception. The Baltimore bounty hunters were not tied to the Bloods officially, just a nomenclature adopted by a collection of thugs who had big aspirations but little guile. This doesn't mean they weren't dangerous. In fact, their lack of centralized command and haphazard operational strategy makes them an unwieldy and unpredictable threat. One of the organizers of the party, a 27-year-old original gangster, OG, who has been around, told me during my investigation he and several other older gang members had organized the get-together to sleep with the gang's nubile females, some as young as 16. They had purchased several bottles of Ciroc, the vodka made from grapes promoted by Sean Diddy Combs, originally as Puff Daddy and later P. Diddy. They rented Room 312 and had planned to conduct their version of a Northwest Baltimore orgy. The so-called women gang members were really children, girls the age of my daughters, young teens who willingly congregated in a seedy motel room to be plied with vodka in exchange for sex. Sometime during the party, Petro Taylor showed up. A short, skinny 20-year-old with a healthy rap sheet and a name that foreshadowed what was about to befall him that night. Petro was a high school dropout and a petty drug dealer. But he also had a serious problem. Petro had been given $200 in cash to put in the commissary account of the gang's original gangster. The OG was locked up in Baltimore County for attempted murder. Anyone who knows prison understands how important commissary money is. It buys the niceties, gum or a comb, things we take for granted in the free world. It also buys the narcotics. However, for reasons we will never know, Petro never delivered the cash. So when Petro arrived at the motel, a gang member named Terrell Gray confronted him about it. But Petro gave him lip, and a fight ensued. To this day, I don't know if they planned to kill Petro from the outset, but they certainly had intent to do serious harm. After Gray and Petro finished fighting, Gray left the party. He said later that he was done with the gang and had left the party on purpose. But Petro kept mouthing off, and the fighting resumed. During this go-round, almost all the other gang members joined in. Within seconds, Petro was surrounded by nearly a dozen men, boys and, yes, girls. He was beaten nearly unconscious as other gang members looked on, sipping vodka from paper cups. When the beating was over, Petro lay semi-conscious on a bed, bleeding from multiple wounds to his face. He was still alive, in fact. I can't be sure, but it seems based on what we learned later from the medical examiner. Had they simply left him there or dropped him off at a hospital, he would have been up and about the next day. But as Petro lay on the bed, several of the gang members hatched a plan, a plan that turned into a prolonged and painful death sentence for Petro. I can't really speculate on how this plan was hatched or who thought it up. My assumption is that it was Antmo. He was the true stone-cold killer, a hardened street thug who had killed before. But even if it was Antmo who prescribed the events I'm about to recount, I still, to this day, struggle with it. It's one thing to say we all have the capacity to kill, that it's innate. If someone attacks you, threatens the life of your child, for example, you have the ability to respond, believe me. But to contemplate someone's death, to stand around in a motel room and figure out how you're going to finish off a man who is still alive and breathing, that's a different story. That's the work of a killer. Killers are a different breed. They're not the imaginative and diabolical criminals that populate crime shows. What sets them apart is simply the fact that for whatever reason, they have no empathy. Some would call this being a sociopath. But that's embellishing. The Baltimore Killer is a straightforward, no-nonsense, down-to-business, if not sloppy and stupid and so utterly detached and comfortable from murder, if you spend enough time with him, it indeed begins to seem routine. How such people get there is the important question. Why is it common to Baltimore? How can such a small city produce the bounty hunters, child killer Melvin Jones, and even 14 year old murderer Devin Richardson in the span of only several years? That's where the pathology comes into play, or maybe we should call it a communal virus, a social pathogen. But back to room 312. While Petro lay on the bed, half conscious, probably moaning in pain, someone came up with the idea to put him in the trunk of a car and drive him to Leakin Park. But here's where the story takes a surreal twist. Before they actually moved him, someone had the semi-bright idea of wrapping Petro up in a motel blanket. Even Otter, a young college girl named Tanisha Lawson, took a sheet and a shower curtain, a pillowcase, the motel phone, and a remote control. Next, as they carried Petro down the stairs before placing him in the trunk of a car, the suspects made sure they did so in full view of the security cameras. In fact, one of our first witnesses was able to identify almost all the culprits from the footage. And this is where the tale turns even more bizarre. The driver, Tanisha Lawson, the petite child with a cursive smile, backs her car up next to the stairwell, gets out, and opens the trunk. Murder One. I remember interviewing Tanisha, sitting in the box, watching her as she calmly related the story of what happened next. I even remember trying to help her, trying to give her a bit of an out for Murder One with intent. So you popped the trunk from inside the car, right? I questioned, offering her a little wiggle room. Maybe she didn't know they were putting Petro in the trunk. No, she said without flinching. The latch was broken, so I had to get out of the car it gets worse. With Petro in the trunk, Antmo in the front seat, and Sierra Pyle and Grishana Rogers in the back, and Tanisha driving, the gang members didn't have a concrete plan. For a while, they simply drove around, unsure of what to do. Petro was still alive. They could hear him moaning from the trunk. So Antmo came up with an idea take him to Leakin Park and burn him. Leakin Park is Baltimore's ad hoc cemetery, it's a body dumping ground of first resort. Once Antmo came up with the idea, not a single one of the girls objected. No one said a word in protest. They admitted as much in their confession. Burn him, I remember Tanisha saying when I asked her what they planned to do with him after he was placed in the trunk of her car. You didn't know when you were driving around what you were going to do with Petro, I asked her. Yes, I did, she repeated. We were going to burn him. Tanisha then drove to a gas station on Reisterstown Road. There she bought a two-liter bottle of Pepsi, but it wasn't because she was thirsty. I drank some, and then I filled it with gasoline," she confessed. With the two liters of gasoline in the empty soda bottle, the group proceeded to Leakin Park. And that's when things become inexplicable. Petra was hardly dead, and all the passengers in that car could hear it. He was moaning in pain, breathing heavily. It was like a scene out of Goodfellas, when the gangster they thought they had killed started kicking in the trunk. But instead of Joe Pesci and Robert De Niro, you have a bunch of tiny teenage girls. When they finally arrived at the utility road next to a stream deep inside Lincoln Park, Antmo and 16-year-old Grishana Rogers got out of the car, opened the trunk, and together they stabbed Petro 22 times. Then the group moved Petro from the car to a small patch of forest adjacent to the stream. There, the girls laid out a pillow and blanket for him. They placed him on the ground, and Tanisha poured the gasoline from the soda bottle, dousing Petro with accelerant. Finally, Antmo took out a book of matches. The girls told me he lit the match, held it high in the air, then dropped it on Petro's body, which burst into flames. During Petro's autopsy, the medical examiner found leaves in his lungs. Petro was alive when Antmo lit that match. These three girls and a second-rate thug had actually burned a man alive. The next day, a park employee spotted the smoldering body. When we arrived, he was half cremated. The ashes of his body were spread across the leaves like a soot blanket. The stench from the summary execution by burning was lingering and putrid. Immediately, we had the lead they left us. My detective, Mike Moran, found the phone, the television remote, and the blankets. All the items were traceable back to the red carpet Inn. At the motel, we confiscated the security camera tapes. We also were able to trace back the items left at the park to room 312. But when we called the crime lab and informed management that we would be conducting forensics in the room, we made another grisly discovery. The room had been rented two poor tourists had slept on the bed that underneath the sheets was covered with blood just one night after Petro had lain there, half-conscious and beaten. Why the motel maids didn't report the bed being soaked with blood is an open question. Perhaps they never removed the bedspread when they tidied up the room and got ready for the next rental. However, the tapes from the security cameras and the registration information were all we needed. Most of the gang members had literally mugged for the camera. We had plenty. In the meantime, the medical examiner finished the autopsy and delivered grim results. Petro's death was the result of multiple causes. blunt force trauma to the head, stab wounds to the chest, arms, neck, and head, and finally, smoke inhalation. Petra was breathing when his body was doused with gasoline and set on fire. He was burned alive. I can only hope for his sake he was unconscious. The tapes from the security cameras were like watching a custom-made movie of the crime, left like a gift for homicide detectives. First, we had a tape of one suspect checking into the motel, then a shot of a large group leaving the room after the fight, we believed. Then we had footage of the suspects carrying the blanket, pillowcases, and other evidence out of the room. And finally, we actually had a clear shot of several of the gang members carrying Petro's body to the car. It was unbelievable that the kids were that stupid. Of course, what they lacked in criminal intelligence, they made up for in pure ruthlessness. Our next big break came when Detective Moran located one of the men captured on the video. For his protection, I will not reveal his identity, but needless to say, he gave us the name of almost every suspect caught on film. Still, we needed someone to piece together for us who did what and when. And that person turned out to be another member of the bounty hunters who wasn't too thrilled with gang life. He was there for the fight, but left shortly after Petra was knocked unconscious. But he also knew who stayed behind in the motel room. I remember as he ticked off the names and we started piecing together who did what. That's when things got unsettling. For other than Anthony Williams, aka Antmo, the three primary actors who carried out the execution of Petro Taylor were the young women I mentioned before Tanisha Lawson, Grishana Rogers, and Sierra Pyle, who had just turned 20. These weren't tough-looking Amazons. These were petite girls. And so for the next several weeks, we brought each girl in for questioning. And as we did, my thoughts always strayed back to why. Grishana Rogers was only 16, a short, plump girl from northwest Baltimore. She not only confessed to beating up Petro in the motel, but later to stabbing him multiple times as he lay in the trunk prior to being burned. Sierra Powell admitted to carrying the evidence out of the motel room and helping to carry his body to the spot in the woods where he was eventually lit on fire. Still, the most troubling of the three female accomplices was perhaps Tanisha Lawson, a petite, unassuming girl, and as I said before, quiet and cold in the box. Yet it didn't take much to get her to talk either. Once we told her what we had, she simply recounted the tale and her role in Petro's death as matter of fact as if she were telling a girlfriend how she got lost en route to a party. Her voice was steady, her tone even and unemotional. Her gaze was unflinching. It was her car, as I said before, that delivered Petro to the park. It was she who purchased the soda bottle and filled it with gasoline, then poured it on the sheets and pillowcases before laying Petro out in the park to die. This small, diminutive college girl even took part in the beating. And so she sat, not a single moment of body language that implied fear, not one tear of remorse, not even a quiver in the voice of a person who has a semblance of a conscience. Instead, Tanisha simply sat there and talked about how she planned, participated in, and later covered up the drawn-out execution of Petro Taylor. I'll never forget when I asked her why. Because that's what we were told to do, she said. The gang was more powerful than a family, enabling a child to commit a horrific murder. And with Tanisha's confession, I had come full circle to the question prompted by Aunt Mo's callousness. For she wasn't a child of the ghetto, a castaway without parental guidance or educational opportunity. She didn't fit the mold. I remember calling Tanisha's mother shortly after she confessed. Your daughter is here with us at homicide, I said. That's impossible. She's in Atlanta. Ma'am, you need to pull over, I said before handing the phone to Tanisha. Without missing a beat, Tanisha picked up the phone. Mom, we're here because we killed someone. Then all I could hear was her mother screaming, a mother I would later learn took her daughter to church every Sunday. A woman who worked her way up as regional manager of a fast food company so her daughter could attend college in Atlanta. A mother who cared so much for her daughter, she still refused to believe, even after Tanisha confessed, that her little girl poured gasoline over the body of Petra Taylor. A woman whose only mistake may have been trying to raise her daughter in Baltimore. Which brings me back to that night, standing outside of Homicide with Antmo. Antmo, the big bad killer, who nonchalantly dropped the match on the body of his friend, but who didn't want to feel the fleeting pain of a lit cigarette butt. The man whose ruthless, stupid idea to kill Petro led to seven of his fellow gang members serving out jail sentences ranging from three years for the men who initiated the fight to 20 years for each of the girls. Ruined lives, a dead young man. All I was left with was this thought, was Antmo really a stone-cold killer? Or was he just an idiot, a product of despair, someone so stupid and yet so ruthless that only a town with an irreparably broken heart could stand him? A town with a disease called murder. But to provide some context to the bounty hunters, I also want to discuss a part of the book that isn't tied to a particular case, but a general pattern of behavior Kelvin encountered in a place known as the box. The box, as it's called, is where homicide detectives interrogate suspects. It's also where our co-author, Kelvin Sewell, encountered a trend among shooting suspects Stephen decided to write about. Stephen, can you talk about it?
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the things was... Um, you know, as as you, as you work as a reporter in Baltimore, the cycle of violence continues almost unabated. Like, it's almost like nothing can interfere with this city's destructive penchant for violence. So it becomes, to me, it became a, like, central question. You know, I, I, I could go to so many homicide scenes and write about so many homicide cases, but at what point it become futile? Because what I used to call the vengeance cycle, right? You know, someone gets killed, something crazy happens, you write about it, everybody gets angry, but nobody really tries to look at the you know, not just the root causes, but the psyche of a city that is capable of doing this, because, you know, and because I know there's a, a tremendous amount of discussion between, you know, uh, and basic understanding, like raising a child versus, you know, genetic destiny versus environment, right? That's a big sort of dividing point. But I think in Baltimore, you know, you had like these invisible boundaries, right? I mean, Baltimore has 300 murders, Baltimore County has 20. I mean, what kind of place that we created. To me, it was, or became almost a question of place. And in that place, there was a psychology in the form of the city itself. And as I covered these cases, and Kelvin and I would talk every night, I got a picture of a city that was like, in a way, a containment of all the sort of social ills that would create a fabric where this kind of violence would be not just okay, but have an imperative to continue. Because really, If you look at baltimore uh, from a historical perspective we've spent more on law enforcement than any city i can imagine of our size we have one of the largest police departments in the country um per per population and yet we've never been able to get to places like homicide rates like dc or, or, or other cities that are our size or even cleveland we we just have more and um when Covent would tell me these bits and pieces of stories, for example, the story about the alphabet, um, I understood that, that we, we had created a different world of the mind, right? That the mindset, uh, and let me not use the word the mindset, but the, the psychic conditions, the psychological conditions of Baltimore, um, which you could see in sort of the form of the city itself, had conformed to a character of violence that was almost impenetrable. And one of the things I wanted to do, and one of the reasons we worked on this book together was that I wanted to understand it rationally like because we had always you always look at violence when you when you think about the case of the bounty hunters which which we which you just read it seems to us um, almost um, impossible to comprehend right because how can we think when we were sixteen or seventeen of doing what What happened. But I think that case is important because it is that incomprehension which is continuing the violence because we just can't understand the perspective of the people that do it. And while that is an uncomfortable thing to think about, uh, it is also necessary Uh, because if we don't, then I don't see where we ever get any better. So my feeling was that, that Baltimore had like a certain collection of psychological issues. Number one is we talked about punishment. We've always been a town of punishment. And I think this comes from the racial divide. The way to keep Baltimore had 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 been a city that was racially segregated to the extreme. And the way you and and part of that had to do with opportunity, you know, it, it was a way of keeping African Americans down economically and keeping them down politically. And the only way you can do that is through punishment and fear. And so punishment and fear has become, has been part of the psyche of the city. You know, you and I covered uh, the, the Confederate statues in Baltimore, right? We covered that very closely. And one of the things we found out in that coverage was that a lot of them were erected in the 1940s, yeah. which really made no sense, right? A hundred years after the Civil War. But it was that barrier they wanted to create. And that barrier is maintained by fear. And that fear comes from policing, not policing as a way to solve crimes, right? Or policing as a way to resolve conflicts within the community, but as a way to create a psychic barrier, Right? of fear. Do not step here. Do not become part of us. Keep divided. And 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 make sure that one part of the community, one part of the community benefits and has power and one is powerless. And human nature just really doesn't ascribe to that. So the only way you enforce it is through fear and punishment. And I think that that punishment has been that cycle and that psychology has become entrenched in the city. It's almost part of our DNA. It is like you know, when they call it epigenetic, it has been epigenetically sewed into our psyche. And one way you see that in real concrete physical terms is how housing has been created. The housing in African-American neighborhoods is old, dilapidated, full of lead. And for generations, African-Americans were lead poisoned. Right? Lead poisoning has been shown to precipitate violence. Longitudinal studies have shown that people who are lead poisoned at an early age are more likely to be involved in crime incapable of learning Lowered impulse control violent tendencies absolutely incapable of learning too incapable of of doing the basic the executive function part of the brain which is the prefrontal lobe does not evolve does not grow so it beca- it's smaller it's like you're with us you have a smaller processor yes. yeah it's like you have a computer with a much smaller processor and therefore uh, you, there could be nothing more damning than that, right? Than 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 a disease, than a disease of the mind that cannot be cured, and so you had these houses that were full of lead. The city did nothing about them. The white landlords profited from them, and the segregation continued. And you have raised a, 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 a generations after generation of people who are psychologically stunted, and neurologically damaged, and, neurologically damaged and economically isolated. And then the only thing they see. Is punishment in the form of police. The only form of governance that really infiltrates the neighborhoods where most of the violence occurs is policing. And policing, as we know, is something that isn't really geared toward productive solutions, productive outcomes, or benefiting people. I don't care how you want to spin it. I don't care how many, athletically, is policing has one function. And that's not really something that is the fault of policing. It's what policing is designed to do is to punish. It's to arrest. It's to shoot. It's whatever. It's what it's about. It's violence. And it is necessary in certain cases, obviously, you know, you have to arrest the bounty hunters. You can't just let them run around, but it doesn't mediate or in any way cure the ills that have been created by this divided community. And I think that divided psyche and that conflict is, is, the, is sort of the progenitor of the conflict that we see playing out. It plays out, it has been embedded in us and we can continue to act it out. And you see it in crime and you see it in violence and the seeds of violence were sown in our discordant culture, society, how we evolved and it, and, and it, and it will continue until we, until we dissolve it. And I don't see it happening. And I think that's like what we don't want to recognize. You know, there are places of this city like the way I described Northern Parkway in Reisterstown where they're so desolate. But they're desolate in a way. I said that's not dramatic because it's not like the South Bronx when I was growing up that was burned out and, you know, the birth of hip hop. It's just, it's just dead. And, um, you know, I think unless we start to comprehend that and comprehend that the city has given up its imagination to vengeance, then we're never going to have a city that's not going to be dependent upon violence. And so much of our cl- political and cultural institutions are dependent upon it. You know, policing is the biggest and most best funded. Institution. We just had a new police commissioner who's coming here and they're treating him like the next coming of Christ. But he's just a police commissioner. And what can a police commissioner do about imagination and vision?
0: Much of my time as a homicide detective was spent in what is known as the box. The room made famous in cop shows like Homicide Life on the Street and The Wire. It's where we question both witnesses and suspects. On television, the box is a scene of epic battles between cunning criminals and ingenious detectives, an OK corral with a table and a couple chairs. But in reality, the box is a dull sort of social purgatory, more of a way station for the city's less fortunate and too far gone, Baltimore's version of a social terminus. Truth be told, the cunning killers and edgy sociopaths of television rarely make an appearance in the room I work in. The visitors I encounter in the box are mostly young, often male. They're withdrawn and exhibit the natural defensiveness that comes with living in an economically deprived and by default socially isolated ghetto. But the point of the story and how it relates to the question of why we kill is pretty simple. So simple that it belies all the melodrama and posturing of television crime shows and nightly crime reports. It's a buzzkill, really, for all the people who like to paint the misery of Baltimore as some sort of epic battle between good and evil, or incompetence and failed politics. Here's how I know the whole big self-serving narrative is hot air. So I'm in the box sitting across from your average Baltimore killer, or maybe he's just a thug with a money over bitches tattoo inscribed around the back of his neck, or maybe he's a knockoff blood with an attitude that borders on autism. Maybe he's sitting across from me acting like he's not scared, like he doesn't want to talk because he's tough, too tough. Or doesn't think I talked to his cohort just a few hours before, who gave me the whole story on how the young man sitting across from me pulled the trigger that shot the man who now lies on a gurney in the city morgue. So let's just say I'm sitting across from this young man waiting for him to confess. Maybe he's got a record. Maybe he says he wasn't in the neighborhood when the victim was shot. Maybe, too, he doesn't want to talk. Maybe he thinks I'll get tired. We're at an impasse. He's slouching back in the chair— I'm asking questions that he's not answering, at least not truthfully. He's tough, stubborn. He's not afraid of me. So, what do I do? Get up in his face, scream obscenities, whoop and holler? Do I threaten him, glare at him like a maniac, put my gun on the table, finger on the trigger? Do I deny him food, play good cop, bad cop like you see on television, the bad cop who has to be restrained? Hell no, not even close. I don't have to go that far to gain the upper hand. I have a secret weapon, a tactic I discovered that never fails to unnerve even the most stone-cold Baltimore thugs. A counterattack that leaves them speechless, a foil that's delivered a psychological advantage to me in countless interviews over dozens of cases. If you're so tough, I say, recite the alphabet. The challenge hits them like a ringer. It stuns them. Usually it's the first query in the entire interview that even elicits a response. A challenge that results in a what-the-fuck look that prompts a deeper slump into their chair. Sometimes they get angry. Not an obvious anger, but an indignant guffaw. A roll of the eyes. A snicker. And of all the dozens of young people I've sat across from, not a single suspect or hardened thug has been able to do it. Complete the alphabet? Not one. Not one. I don't let them mumble through the LMNOP part either, which they often try to do. I make them speak clearly. I make them say each and every letter, and to a person they cannot. They couldn't do it if their lives depended on it, if I told them they could go free right then and there, even if I offered them straight-up immunity, which I couldn't. They could not string together the 26 letters that comprise the English language. With this in mind, let me ask the question again. Why? do we kill? Well, killing is, of course, innate. We're all capable of it, a skill buried in our subconscious, but very much present. A behavior that a cop learns quite quickly is not as unusual as one might think. But in Baltimore, that ability goes beyond logic or reason. People kill because they're angry over a slight, frustrated over a hard look, pissed off because somebody talked to their girl. They kill and are killed for nothing. Bear in mind that the more than 200 people killed on average annually in Baltimore are the successful homicides. Every year there are over 600 shootings, what we call failed homicides. Then there are thousands of assaults and beatings, knife fights and fist fights, and even vehicular killings and strangulations that are not recorded as homicides. So when I think about the question of why we kill, I think about the alphabet and what it means. Because some say the cause is our faulty education system. Some people attribute it to lack of interest in learning and antipathy to knowledge. Others attribute it to broken homes, lack of parenting, and a failure of communal guidance. But I look at the failure to know the letters of the English language from a different angle. I look at it as recognition of reality, a sign of despair, a psychic sickness that is fostered by the crumbling row homes along the broken sidewalks of Baltimore neighborhoods. I see it as a sort of recognition of the blindness that afflicts the city. Isn't it a reflection of a world that is poor, neglected, and only knows governance in the form of punishment? I look at it the same way I do when I drive down Route 83 on the JFK and see a prison complex bigger than any factory or office building in the city. I see it as the mirror image of a city that suffers from terminal despair, where there is indeed no social compact. Maybe I'm overcomplicating it. Maybe I'm giving people who are often described as knuckleheads too much credit. In fact, maybe it just doesn't matter. After all, most city cops live in suburbs far removed from the mayhem and the violence that afflicts Baltimore. Maybe it's the cops who are disconnected and just don't understand. But I think the question is worth considering, given that violence in this city has not stopped. Thank you for joining us on The Land of the Unsolved, Episode 1, Why Do We Kill?
1: If you have a case you want us to explore, please feel free to contact us through our Facebook page, Baltimore True Crime, and our website, landoftheunsolved.com.
0: If you want to read more about unsolved murder in Baltimore and beyond, Stephen and I have written three books about the subject, all available through Amazon.com. Why Do We Kill? The Pathology of Murder in Baltimore, You Can't Stop Murder, Truths About Policing in Baltimore and Beyond, and The Book of Cop, a testament to policing that works.
1: The Land of the Unsaw was written and produced by Stephen Janis and Teagram for A-Spectrum Productions. We record at the Moose House Recording Studio, and our engineer is Ryan Escalopio.
0: Remember to visit the website for our sponsor, America's number one crime mapping company. Go to spotcrime.com, type in your address, and the Spot Crime Mapping Service will give you the latest info regarding crime in your neighborhood or anywhere else for that matter. The best part? It's free. So be sure to check out spotcrime.com because safety begins with knowing.
1: I'm Steven Janis.
0: And I'm Taya Graham. And thank you for joining us for The Land of the Unsolved.